Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. I want to start off by letting you all know that this is going to be a short little mini episode. I had a big test for work today. I have midterms for funeral directing and funeral home management and my sister's wedding all happening within the next few weeks, but I didn't want to leave you guys hanging. I also did release the first round of Stories from the Mortuary t-shirts, and if you've got one and want to be featured on the Instagram, make sure to direct message me at storiesftmortuary, and you can also send me a message if you'd like to buy a shirt. Today's story may be short, but it's vastly intriguing because it inspired the opening scene of the 2001 classic horror film, Jeepers Creepers. Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those Jeepers? Jeepers Creepers, where'd you get those eyes? Now, of course, the case has nothing to do with a winged monster or Justin Long, but I had no idea that any part of Jeepers Creepers was based in reality, even if it was just for one scene. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I do recommend watching it because it's a really fun creature feature. If it's not really your cup of tea, I insist that you at least watch the opening scene. I'm sure you could find it on YouTube. And just watch it so you can get an idea of just how terrifying that that must have been in reality. My primary source for this episode comes from an article written by Neil Patmore, as well as an episode of a show called Man with a Van, and the specific episode is titled Road Rage. But first, I do need your help finding another missing Indigenous woman. Christine Marie Hansen was last seen in Grand Rapids, Michigan, sometime in September of 1974. She had lived in Petoskey in northern Michigan with her husband and three children, and her marriage was troubled because of her drinking problem and arguments with her husband. She occasionally left home for a few days at a time, but always reappeared. Sometime in September of 1974, Christine disappeared from her home in Petoskey. Her husband found some suitcases in their backyard and assumed his wife had left him and possibly hitched a ride out of the area. A week later, Christine's husband drove to the home of one of her relatives in Grand Rapids and left the suitcases there. Once he returned to Petoskey, he filed a missing persons report. He divorced her about a year after she disappeared. Christine's sisters in Grand Rapids last saw her in the summer of 1974. She had a close relationship with her sisters, and their families frequently visited each other. Christine called her sister and her sister-in-law in in the fall of that year, saying she was going to go visit them. Christine didn't visit, however, and her family never heard from her again. There's been no activity on Christine's social security number since the summer of 1974, and she never renewed her driver's license. In spite of her alcohol problem, she had a good relationship with her children, and her loved ones don't think she would have abandoned them. In July 1986, Nicholas Brasick Jr. was convicted of rape and first-degree murder in Christine's presumed death. One of the primary witnesses was Paul Howell. He was a friend of Nicholas's, and his brother had dated Christine. Paul testified that at the end of September 1974, Christine came to his Grand Rapids apartment looking for his brother. Paul and Nicholas were at the residence at the time, and both had been drinking. The two men left with Christine in Nicholas's yellow van and drove to a field north of Grand Rapids. Paul stated Christine and Nicholas went into the back of the van, and he heard Nicholas beating Christine for 10 to 15 minutes as she cried and groaned. Nicholas went back to the front of the van without Christine and drove Paul home. The next day, Paul asked Nicholas what happened to Christine, and Nicholas told him he'd taken care of it and refused to say anything more on the subject. 
Two other witnesses, one of them being Nicholas's ex-girlfriend and the mother of his child, testified that Nicholas told them he had beaten a girl to death in his van and that he buried her body near South Bend, Indiana. Nicholas was sentenced to life in prison for Christine's murder. Her body has never been found, but foul play is suspected due to the circumstances involved. Christine has black hair and brown eyes, and she's 5'2", weighing between 120 and 135 pounds. She may have three or four capped teeth. She has a dark spot on her right ankle, and she wears eyeglasses with heavy, dark-colored plastic frames. She also may use the following alias names, Barbara Jean Campo, Christine Marie Campo, and or Christine Marie Harrington. She was last seen wearing a blue ski coat, a yellow blouse, brown and yellow slacks, and a white gold mother's ring with four stones. If you have any information on Christine's whereabouts or leads on where her remains might be, please contact the Kent County Sheriff's Department at 616-632-6100. On Easter Sunday, April 15, 1990, Ray and Marie Thornton were on a traditional weekend drive along Snow Prairie Road, a rural highway 12 miles outside Coldwater, Michigan. Between work and raising their children, their weekends away were their only alone time together. They enjoyed the scenic ride, cruising about 20 to 30 miles an hour in their family car. In their rearview mirror, Ray spotted a brown van accelerating aggressively behind them as they headed up the hill. He sped up, since he didn't want to inconvenience the vehicle behind him by driving slowly. But the van tailgated dangerously close to the back of the car before swerving in and out of the lane to pass them. The couple had been playing a game of making slogans from the license plates of passing cars, so when the van sped past, Marie saw the plate beginning GZ and remarked, geez, he's in a hurry. The couple continued on their trip, not putting much thought into the road-raging driver that had just passed them. About two miles up the road, they approached an abandoned schoolhouse. As they got closer to the schoolhouse, the Thorntons saw the same van parked to the side of the building. Then... Marie caught a disturbing sight. The driver was holding what appeared to be a bloody sheet and walking toward the rear of the schoolhouse. Since Marie was a nurse, she was very familiar with what bloodstained sheets looked like. Although she and Ray were shocked, they weren't quite sure what they had just witnessed. Ray was trying to be rational. It was probably just a maintenance worker who spilled red paint on a sheet. But Marie wasn't buying it. She knew it wasn't red paint. As they discussed whether or not to call the police, Ray Thornton saw the ominous brown van approaching again in the rearview mirror. The Thorntons were worried about what the driver pursuing them would do, so they turned off the highway just as the van suddenly pulled to the side of the road. To try and obtain the full license plate for the police, Ray Thornton turned his car around and they approached the van again. As they approached the Michigan-Illinois border, they noticed the man they had seen driving was crouched down behind the van. He was using a screwdriver to change the rear license plate from a Michigan plate to an Illinois plate. The Thorns could also see the van's open front passenger door, and the inside was splashed with blood. The couple felt like they should try to find what the man dumped. They courageously rushed back to the schoolhouse and parked their car. When they reached the side of the schoolhouse where Marie spotted the driver, the couple found the bloody sheet partially stuffed into a shallow ditch. When they pulled out the sheet, they noticed bone and tissue matter on it, and they instantly knew something was horribly wrong. 
The Thorntons rushed back to their car and began searching for a phone they could use. They pulled up to a farm they spotted nearby and frantically knocked at the door for help. The couple who answered the door were alarmed by hearing the incoherent ramblings about a bloody sheet and murder, so they called the police while the Thorntons remained outside. Dennis Henry Depew was born in Michigan and remained in his home state as an adult while working as a property assessor. In 1971, he married Marilyn Lee McClenahan. Marilyn was born on January 24, 1941 in Detroit. By the time she married Dennis, she'd become a popular high school counselor in Coldwater. The students and staff at Coldwater High School respected and loved Marilyn dearly. The couple had three children, two girls and a boy. On the surface, they were a perfectly happy family, but that was a far cry from reality. Dennis's paranoid and controlling ways had reared its ugly head, wearing Marilyn down with each passing year. The sullen and withdrawn Dennis isolated himself from the family and frequently accused Marilyn of turning the children against him. Although he never laid his hands on her, his yelling, constant accusations, and explosive temper were enough to make Marilyn call it quits. Marilyn filed for divorce in 1989, telling her attorney that Dennis was trying to control every decision in her life. She and the children were afraid of him. Dennis made no claim on the house following the divorce, but maintained a home office in the garage. One day, Marilyn came home to find Dennis sitting on the couch in the living room, despite her having changed all the locks. He never offered an explanation as to how he entered the house without a key. The couple's divorce was finalized in December of 1989. Dennis hadn't taken the divorce well. He never wanted to separate from Marilyn, even though she was the source of his frustrations. At the beginning of April 1990, he told one of his co-workers that he wanted to kill Marilyn and then take his own life. This was just a few days before he became completely unhinged on Easter Sunday 1990, as he arrived at the family home to pick up two of their children. Their younger daughter, Julie, had refused to go with him that day. As he went inside, he became angry when their son, Scott, also began stalling. When Marilyn talked to Dennis, his anger increased, and he grabbed her, shouting his usual accusations of turning the children against him. In this moment, all his anger and resentments towards Marilyn led him to a breaking point. After hitting and grappling with Marilyn, Dennis pushed her. Marilyn toppled down the stairs to the basement and finally came to a stop at the bottom where she lay motionless. As their horrified children looked on, Dennis grabbed their dazed mother from the basement and walked her to his Chevrolet van. Marilyn was seriously injured, so Dennis told the children he was taking her to the hospital. Sometime later, one of their daughters called the police, telling them that her dad had taken their mom to the hospital a while ago and hadn't been back. They sent an officer to the hospital to check on Marilyn, but it was soon discovered that the Depews never checked in at all. The following day, April 16th, the driver of a Branch County Road commission truck pulled over when he spotted something off in the grass on the side of the road. He used his radio to call in that he found a dead body on the ironically named Butcher Road. Responding officers immediately identified the body to be that of Marilyn Depew. Her cause of death appeared to be a single gunshot wound to the head. A forensics team sealed off the abandoned schoolhouse crime scene, and the tire tracks at the school matched Dennis's van. By then, Dennis Depew was in the wind, a fugitive wanted for murder. 
Over the next several days and weeks, Dennis DePew sent a series of bizarre, rambling letters to friends, family, and co-workers of Maryland's, including the principal of Coldwater High School. Each of these letters blamed the recipients for the divorce and attempted to justify Marilyn's death. There were 17 letters in all, postmarked in Virginia, Iowa, and Oklahoma. In one of the letters he wrote, quote, Marilyn had many, many opportunities to treat me fairly during this divorce, and she chose to string it out, trick me, lie to me, and when you lose your wife, children, and home, there's not much left. I was too old to start over. In a letter to the principal, he wrote, quote, Marilyn never would have left me if you didn't convince her to. You made her lie to me, manipulate me. You took my family from me. In a letter sent to a teacher at the school, Dennis wrote, quote, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a lie for a lie, a life for a life. Another one of his letters said, quote, These people should have seen what was coming, and they all should bear the blame for Marilyn's death, not me. Three months after Marilyn's murder, Dennis sent another letter. This time, it was 13 pages in length and quoted verses from the Bible. On the evening of March 20th, 1991, as a Dallas, Texas woman arrived home, she noticed her boyfriend's van sitting in the driveway, which was unusual because he usually kept it inside the garage. Once inside, her boyfriend, named Hank Queen, told her he needed to make an emergency trip home as his mother was very ill. Hank kept an interested eye on the Unsolved Mysteries episode playing on the TV, gathering up his clothes and personal items, asking her to make him some sandwiches for the trip. He deliberately kept her distracted in the kitchen so that she wouldn't see the show, the second half of which featured a man named Dennis DePew wanted for the murder of his ex-wife. As Hank said goodbye to her, driving off in his 1984 Chevrolet van, the woman had a suspiciously weird feeling that she would never see him again. Hank, who was really Dennis, took off immediately, fearing one of his girlfriend's friends would recognize him from Unsolved Mysteries and turn him in. He was right. As state and county law enforcement already had the false Texas license plate of Dennis's van based on a tip from the show. It took Dennis four frantic hours to drive into Louisiana, then across the Mississippi state border. Louisiana state troopers had spotted his van, and he led them on a 15-mile high-speed chase, refusing to be pulled over. Across the state line, Mississippi authorities lay in wait alerted by their Louisiana counterparts in the FBI that the driver was wanted for murder. When Dennis's van blasted through a roadblock, Warren County, Mississippi Sheriff's officers shot out both of his rear tires. Dennis shot at the officers' cars, trying to ram them off the road, as his van dragged along before coming to a forcible stop by officers around 4 a.m. As an officer approached his van, Dennis DePew was found dead with a 357 in his left hand and his thumb on the trigger. After her murder, Coldwater High School set up the Marilyn DePew Memorial College Fund in her honor. Marilyn was interred at the Oakland Hills Memorial Garden Cemetery in Michigan. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for the next Story from the Mortuary.